Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 31 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Today, we're going to add to last week's episode where we explored single asset real estate companies. These are businesses that raise capital from investors in order to invest in one property. That's in contrast with real estate funds, which typically buy into multiple assets. So we're going to do this by looking at a real life example that is currently accepting money from new investors. To respect their privacy, I'm not going to give the name or the location of the project, but I do want to go through some of the pertinent details. I think that real estate-oriented investors will find this to be useful, and it will help us illustrate last week's conversation. For any newcomers to the Income Investing Podcast, thanks for joining us. My name is Alexis Asadi. I'm your host, and we spend every Wednesday together covering any kind of investment that can produce income or dividends preferably on a monthly basis, but sometimes quarterly too. Our focus is on assets that are available to North Americans, but many of them also exist internationally, so I welcome listeners from the UK, Australia, and from around the world. Now, people like us are drawn to income investments because of their many advantages. For example, you can either reinvest the dividends and compound your returns, or you can use them to supplement your regular earnings. Many people even reach a point where their dividends are actually high enough to live on altogether. As well, a lot of these assets can appreciate in price. So you can enjoy months or years of recurring revenue, and then later on you can sell for a profit if the company's value goes up. There are also countless income investments across different industries. There are stocks, real estate investment trusts or REITs, mortgage funds, royalty companies, peer-to-peer -peer loans, and more. They can exist in the property market, in utilities, financial services, energy, natural resources, and almost anywhere that one could look. And a lot of these assets can trade on the stock market and can be purchased with less than a few hundred dollars. So for that reason, they can be quite affordable for a lot of people. So let's quickly recap the last few weeks just to make sure that we're all on the same page. I always encourage people to listen in chronological order because I try to build each episode on the prior material. Right now, we're covering investment funds, which are often a type of income-producing asset, and we began this in episode 23. So there we saw that a fund is a company that does two things. First, it raises money from investors, and second, it then deploys that capital into various assets with the goal of generating a financial return. A fund will usually have a mandate or an objective, such as generating income for investors. There are plenty of funds that are geared towards producing monthly cash flow for their stakeholders. The following week, we looked at the fund structure. We saw that they are generally corporations, limited partnerships, or trusts. We also discussed how management gets paid for operating the fund. In episode 25, we looked at a concept that is known as share classes or series. It's actually something that can apply to any kind of business, not just a fund, but it's pretty common in this space. So we analyzed some of the differences between class A, B, and C shares. The week after, we talked about the underlying mechanisms that can cause funds to produce returns for their investors. We saw that income funds will typically pay out their earnings, minus management fees, minus business expenses, and they will do so at the discretion of management. So that was a really important episode from a conceptual perspective. Another thing that we've seen is that there are all sorts of funds out there. Some invest in stocks, others in bonds, 
others in private equities, and so forth. So right now we're in the process of breaking all of those different ones down. In episode 27, we looked at a specific type called mortgage funds, which are obviously funds that invest in mortgages. And then two weeks later in episode 29, we started to talk about real estate funds. And that led us into single asset real estate companies, which are sort of like funds, except that they only ever purchase one property. For example, a group of 50 people might pool their capital together to buy a $10 million building. But what we saw from that episode was that investors don't actually buy into that property. Rather, they invest in the business that was formed to acquire it, which is known as the single asset real estate company. So that carries really important distinctions, such as the fact that these investors are shareholders or unit holders. They are not actually the direct owners of the property. There will also usually be a management team and various fees and equity shares, which can dilute the investor's returns. So we're going to continue down that rabbit hole by examining one that's in existence today. But before we get into that, let's do the usual and get to a question from one of our listeners. Remember, you can always let me know what's on your mind just by going to alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Today's question comes from Angelo, who is in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Beautiful place. He wanted to know my comments on the recent Sears bankruptcy. So yes, uh, the US retail giant Sears filed for bankruptcy in the early hours of Monday morning this week. Now, this is a 132-year-old company that had a $134 million debt payment, which was due on Monday, and it obviously couldn't afford to make it, so it subsequently filed for bankruptcy protection. And all of this happened just nine months after Sears closed down in Canada. Angelo, all of this takes me back to the third episode of Income Investing, which was called How E-Commerce Changed the REIT Landscape. Basically, the thesis was that traditional brick-and-mortar businesses are being destroyed by companies like Amazon. Now, while this trend has been disastrous for retail and office properties, investors in the industrial real estate sector have benefited tremendously. Online shopping businesses need somewhere to store their inventory. So they occupy hundreds of millions of square feet of warehouse and storage space across the world. I don't think anyone should be surprised by what happened to Sears. My guess personally is that the dominoes will continue to fall across the traditional retail space. So thanks for reaching out, Angelo, and nice work for keeping abreast of the news. That's really important for investors to do. I think we talked about that last week a bit. All right, so let's take a look at a real-life example of an investment opportunity into a single-asset real estate company. I've gotten the following information by going through about 40 pages of that company's securities offering documents. I wanted to get into the weeds with this because I know that a lot of people find these kinds of deals appealing, so I think it would help us understand how they can be put together. So the single-asset real estate company in question was formed by a construction company, which has developed over 100 projects in the past two decades. It's now looking to develop a three-acre plot of raw land, which is located in a popular North American resort town with a strong tourism industry. The local population has also steadily grown as a result of retirees moving there. There's also a nearby airport and university both of which draw in people and businesses, and all of this is obviously very good for the real estate market. So the construction business has determined that this is a lucrative place to build another project, and it's in the process of financing the deal by raising money from investors through this single-asset real estate company. The promotional material, which I read online, advertises an investment opportunity with double-digit potential returns in a hot area for real estate. 
The entity that can be invested in was established just a few months ago for the sole purpose of developing the land. It has no other function. Presumably, it would be liquidated after the deal is complete. The construction company has hired a broker to raise $5 million through that entity. The broker is paid a commission of 10% on whatever it raises. So only 90% of investors' capital will ever make it into the deal. The entity is structured as a limited partnership, or LP, and it's raising the money by offering 5 million LP units for $1 each. The minimum investment amount is for 25,000 LP units, so $25,000, and as such, there will be a maximum of 200 investors into the project. Now, you'll recall that LPs are comprised of two parts. There's the manager, also known as the general partner, and then there's the investors, or the limited partners. So the general partner in this deal is the construction company, and it has complete control of the business, but it's also fully liable for its debts. The limited partners are silent investors. They invest their money and enjoy the returns, if any, but they have no risk beyond the sum of their contribution. For example, if the LP goes belly up and it's on the hook for all sorts of mortgage and tax bills, then the general partner would bear those expenses while the limited partners could just walk away. Now, in this case, the limited partners can vote, but only on isolated matters, such as removing the general partner for gross negligence. But in order to do so, they need the vote to pass with at least a 75% majority. So this is pretty hard to do. And this is known as a special resolution, or they'd have to pass a special resolution. Now, the LP already has the land, so there is no pending acquisition. Instead, it's planning to use the money to build 120 conventional and stacked townhouses on it. This will be done in two phases, with the proceeds of the first phase being used to finance the second one. So in phase number one, the company will build 59 townhouses, and it expects to sell them for a total of around $22 million. It's then going to reinvest the profits from those sales into the remaining units, and then after that, it'll sell those units and presumably exit the deal. Now, this is where many investors stop paying attention altogether. The business plan obviously makes sense, the developer is experienced, the location is attractive, so what else is there to think about? Well, construction projects are not simple, and you can see why in the fine print. First, the LP has to develop a project engineering and architectural plan. Then it has to get municipal authorization to subdivide the land into 120 parcels. Next, it has to service the land, build on it, and then sell the properties. And then it has to build the second phase of properties and sell those ones too. So there's plenty of room for delay and uncertainty. With that in mind, we should also consider how the money is going to be spent. Remember, about half a million dollars of what's raised are going to go towards the broker's commission. So we're really only working with about four and a half million dollars. Although the investors are going to want to see a return on their full $5 million investment. So here are some notable expenses. First, the LP will pay about $70,000 towards the final submission of the development permit. Second, over $800,000 are going to go towards taxes, insurance, municipal fees, legal and accounting costs, and also project management. Third, $1.6 million will be deployed into building permits and the site preparation and construction financing applications, insurance, and legal costs and other soft expenses. And about $1.5 million are going to be used to pay down debts that are already on the property. Moreover, and this part is pretty interesting, the investors will not receive the proceeds from the entire development. Rather, they are there for just phase one, where most of the risk is. 
Their involvement in the deal is expected to last for about a year. They are only there to get the project up and running. But when I looked at the marketing material, which is what a lot of people unfortunately base their decisions on, it wasn't misleading, but it definitely did not put it the way that I just did. If I didn't look any further, I would have assumed from that material that the investors get a piece of everything in the development. So during their involvement, the returns from the project will be paid as follows. First, investors will get 100% of the earnings uh, from the project until they've gotten their money back. Then they get to keep all of the profits from it until they've earned a 12% annualized return. That's pretty good. At that point, the general partner can take a 20% cut of the profits. Then the investors earn all of the remaining profits until they've made 16% on their money. And then the general partner can take a 40% cut of the profits. And then after that, anything left over is split equally. And all payments are made to the investors once every six months. So I guess it looks like there would be a total of two payments because it's just a one-year deal. In addition, the general partner will earn 3% of whatever money is raised by the LP. So if they successfully raise the $5 million, the construction company is going to get paid $150,000. And if I recall correctly, it is being done on a uh, monthly basis at $25,000 per month. Lastly, neither the LP nor the general partner have legal title to the property. It's actually going to be held by a company that's related to the general partner. So there's little practical recourse for investors if the project fails. So as you can see, this is a way for retail investors to get involved with a pretty substantial real estate deal. But it's a far cry from directly investing in a property. There are all kinds of structural issues that have to be considered from the standpoint of due diligence. Now, the foregoing is not by any means an unusual arrangement. The general partner has taken on a lot of risk, and it's going to do a lot of work, so it should be compensated fairly. And if the venture is successful, investors could earn healthy double-digit returns. In my view, I think they're a little bit overexposed to risk, but it's definitely well within the spectrum of normalcy. However, it's crucial to pay attention to the minutia of these kinds of investments. There are deals out there where the investors simply don't get enough of the pie. For instance, if this one only paid profits until the investors received 5%, then it would drastically change the risk return profile of the opportunity. So ultimately, I want to make the point that these are indirect real estate investments, no matter how you look at it. There are variables to consider, like how much the manager earns, that direct real estate deals don't usually have. They can be lucrative for all parties involved, but it is also quite possible to turn a very profitable property into a flop for investors while still making money for the manager. So let's leave it there for today. Uh, next week, we're going to start looking at a very popular investment, uh, which are called exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. So these are available on the stock market, and they're loaded with income products. I know a lot of our listeners have been waiting for this chapter of the podcast, so I'm excited to start covering them. Until next Wednesday, I'd be grateful if you could help me spread the word about the Income Investing Podcast, maybe share an episode on social media, and encourage your friends to subscribe. Our listener base has grown by about 20% in the last month, so thanks for that, and I appreciate you helping me spread the word. I'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs>